Well, good morning, Crossroads Church. Man, you are a rowdy bunch today. It is good to be here at North Glen Campus. I want to welcome those of you joining us at Thornton, Fort Lupton Online, uh, wherever you may be, as today we gather around uh, God's Word. Just out of curiosity, as we get started, uh, a couple of questions for you. At all of our campuses, you can just answer by raising your hand high, all right? So how many of you have ever fasted for health reasons, whether that be intermittent fasting, starting a new diet, resetting your metabolism? Yeah, quite a few of you. Okay, good, good. Um, How many of you, second question, how many of you have ever fasted for spiritual reasons? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right. Um, How about this one? How many of you would love to grow in your faith and in your prayer life? Show of hands. Yeah, most all of you. Good, good. Well, I'm thankful for you and those answers to those questions. We are in this message series here at Crossroads where we are walking slowly through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And in doing so, we are encountering Jesus, who he is, who he was, what he was all about. And it just so happens that as we jump into it today, that this part of Jesus' story has a lot to do with fasting, that Jesus has a lot to say about this thing that we call fasting. And so today, we're going to jump into it together. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put it on the screen for you. And just in case uh, you've missed the last couple of weeks of this series or you're brand new here at Crossroads, let me just take a moment uh, to catch you up to where we're at. Like I said, we're walking through this gospel of Luke, and we're calling uh, really what we're walking through this spring season Two. And the reason that we're calling this season two is because back in the fall, we actually did Luke season one, where we looked at the first four chapters of Luke's gospel, really kind of that birth narrative of Jesus's life. And then this spring, really starting in February, we're looking at chapters four through nine. Season two is what we're calling it. And it's in this section of Luke that for anyone, anyone who wants to know about Jesus, for anyone who wants to understand Jesus, that this section of Luke's gospel is vitally important. Now, I know that when I say that, that's a fairly bold statement, particularly with all the other writings that we have when it comes to Jesus in the scriptures. But the reason that I say that is because it's in this section of Luke, over these next several chapters, where we see Jesus' mission in this earth. That why did he come to this earth? That he answers that question for us. And as we discovered a couple of weeks ago, we don't have to wonder, as a people, we don't have to wonder why Jesus came into this world. That we don't have to sit back and think, why is it that that Jesus came into this earth? That we don't have to wonder any of that because Jesus gave it to us so clearly. That the reason that Jesus came into this world, that his mission on this earth was to proclaim the good news to the poor. That's why Jesus came. To proclaim the good news to the poor. All of this is set up really in Luke chapter 4, that Jesus comes out of the wilderness, his temptations, As he walks out of the wilderness, he's full of the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us, and for the next six months or so, he travels through the northern region of Israel called Galilee. He would step into synagogues and he would teach, and and as he taught, people would be marveled at the words that he would say, and as long as this journey through Galilee, he would also do these miracles. And there was quite a buzz about Jesus as as he entered into his hometown, his hometown of Nazareth. He steps into Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue to to speak and to teach on that day. He grabs the Isaiah scroll and he proclaims, using the words of Isaiah, these words. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news of the poor. And then he explains what that means. That he has sent me to proclaim liberty, that is freedom or forgiveness to the captives. The recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And everything, everything that follows, 
from now until the very end of Luke, and specifically over the next few chapters, is Luke showing us how this mission that Jesus is living out, how it lives out in his life. As he unfolds that scroll and as he reads from that, all of the eyes in the synagogue are upon him and he looks at them and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then the march begins to fulfill this mission. And if you were here last week, you, you saw Pastor Tim as he walked us through the rest of chapter 4 and most of chapter 5. And in doing so, he showed us three types of people, three people that, types of people that we will run into time and time again into Luke's gospel. The first group of person, or the first group of people that we were introduced to are those who are poor. In the Hebrew, this, this word, poor, literally means not only those who are, who are materially or physically poor, but also those who are outcasts, that those who are on the fringe of society, that those who have physical ailments or, or disabilities that keeps them pushed out of society. And Jesus comes. And we see him encountering the poor and, and the beauty of him walking alongside people. Walking alongside people who, who society had pushed to the fringes. Those who were materially poor. Those who were sick. Those who were ailing. Those who no one wanted anything to do with. That Jesus comes alongside them and he walks with them, freeing them from their sins. Their oppressions and their captivities. We see Jesus run into a second group of people in this section as well. These are the people who volunteer to be full poor. That they realize that, that they have abilities and wealth. They have these, these things that they actually have to offer, but as they encountered Jesus, they saw something. And what they saw time and time again, that as they encountered Jesus, that their poverty wasn't physically, that their poverty was spiritually. That they were bankrupt before God. We call this second group the disciples. These guys who were willing to become poor in order that they might experience freedom in their souls. And then it's in this section last week as Tim walked us through that we were introduced to another group of people. We call these the Pharisees. They were the religious people of the day and they really represent the third people group that we encounter in the book of Luke. That these religious leaders represent those who, who fought Jesus, who refused to see their need, those who were unwilling to let go and simply be with Jesus and allow him to be their everything. That as we walk through this gospel time and time again, we will see these three people show up. The poor, those who volunteer to be poor, and those who would, who would rather fight Jesus rather than give their lives over to him. And we'll see how Jesus' mission is lived out time and time again through these three groups. And last week, if you were here, we ended with a story of a tax collector named Levi. If you're familiar with the Bible, you may know him better by his Greek name, Matthew. He's famous, actually, for writing the first uh, book of the New Testaments. And before Levi was, was the great gospel writer, Matthew, he was the tax collector, Levi. And after encountering Jesus, the very first thing that he does is he throws a party for all of his friends to come over in hopes that they'll see Jesus the way that he sees Jesus. And as we jump into this story today, it's important for us to understand that when the Bible labels Levi a tax collector, tax collector that that's significant for us. See, if you were a tax collector, it meant a couple of things. First, it meant that you were most likely extremely wealthy. Most tax collectors were. It also meant that you were absolutely despised by the Hebrew people. See, a tax collector in Israel was a Hebrew who went to work for the Roman government. And for the Jewish person, there was hardly anything more low down, more dirty than going to work for Rome. That the Romans were the ones 
in Israel's mind who were oppressing them. They, Israel was the captives to Rome. They, they did not choose Rome to rule over them. That Rome just came in and, and started to rule over them. And they ruled harshly with them. In every way, Rome was the enemies. Rome was the enemies. And these tax collectors were Hebrews, Jewish nationals, who decided that they would go and work for the enemy. And if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't bad enough, that many of the tax collectors became extremely wealthy because Rome did not care how much taxes you collected as, Rome, as long as Rome got theirs. See, the tax collection profession was, was built on corruption. It was built on extortion of the very people that they came from with the Roman military having their backs. See, if you did not pay taxes to Rome, the penalty was death. Levi was a tax collector. Despised by his family, despised by his very own people, extremely wealthy but pushed to the fringes of society. And one day Levi has this encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, Levi, why don't, why don't you leave that and follow me? And in that moment, Levi saw something that absolutely changed his life. And he said yes to Jesus. And he began to follow Jesus, leaving behind his tax-collecting ways and volunteering to become poor in order that he might be free. It's an awesome story of, of redemption and of the way that Jesus works. And one of the first things that Levi does after, after following Jesus is he throws this big old party for all of his tax-collecting friends in hopes that they would see Jesus the way that he sees Jesus. And as this party's going and as people are mingling and meeting Jesus, the Pharisees crash the party. Like the Pharisees show up and they crash the party. And as they crash the party, they're not there to mingle and to have fun and to party. They're there to grumble. And they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus... Why are you eating with tax collectors? Don't you know that they are like, they're like the scum of the earth? That they've turned their backs on their families. They've turned their backs on their people. That they're not worth the food that we feed our dogs. And Jesus answers them, verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Pharisees, the sinners that you look down upon, they're the sick. They're the poor. That they're bankrupt before God. And their only hope in this world is, is that a physician would come and heal them, that a physician would set them free. See, Pharisees, you have this backwards, that you think because of your righteousness, your self-righteousness, that God is for you, that God is here for you. But you've messed it up. You, you're not seeing it straight. That you look down on others touting your self-righteousness and you don't even realize that you're blind. That you're the ones that, that need to be healed and that you would rather fight with me than come to me as your physician so that I can help you see. The Pharisees, completely unfazed by these words of Jesus at this party, dig into their self-righteousness even deeper. Verse 33, and the Pharisees said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, yours, Jesus, they eat and they drink. The Pharisees look at Jesus and they go, look, Jesus, <laughs> you can fire at us all day about righteousness, but the measure of a leader in our system, the measure of a leader in our culture is determined by the piety of his disciples, by the piety of his, of his followers. 
And your followers, they're not following the religious practices of the day. They're not fasting. Our disciples, they're fasting. Your boy John the Baptist, his disciples, they're fasting. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're fasting. But your disciple Levi, he's partying with tax collectors and sinners. What do you say to that, Jesus? Now we need to pause in the story here. Because what the Pharisees are talking about goes all the way back to our favorite book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, if you remember, the book of Leviticus is all about how a holy, unholy, unclean, unpure people can be right or can stand before a holy God. That's what Leviticus is all about. And in Leviticus chapter 16, the Hebrew people are told, are commanded to celebrate a special day called the Day of Atonement. Now, if you're not familiar with the Day of Atonement, it's a fascinating, fascinating celebration, and it has a lot to do with this story. So let me just take a quick moment to explain it. That on the Day of Atonement, a couple things would happen. The first thing that would happen is that two goats would be brought to the temple, to the chief priest, Aaron. And the chief priest, Aaron, would take the first goat, and he would slaughter that goat. He would sacrifice that goat for the forgiveness of sins for the people. That he would take the blood of that goat and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of, remember Indiana Jones? That's the Ark of the Covenant, real thing in the Old Testament, all right? So he would take the blood of the goat and he would sprinkle it on the blood, or on the, or the, take the blood onto the Ark of the Covenant for the forgiveness of people's sins. And then Aaron would go over to the second goat, which was called the scapegoat, and he would place both of his hands on the scapegoat and he would begin to pray over that goat, the wickedness and the rebellion of Israel, that he would symbolically place the sins of the people on that goat. And then that goat, as all of the people of Israel would watch, would be taken to the wilderness and let go into the wilderness to, to wander off by itself. A beautiful picture of our sins or of Israel's sins being carried away. That both of these symbols were beautiful pictures and really foreshadowings of that, that their sin was not only forgiven, but their sin was carried away away. This is how an unholy, unclean people would become clean so that they could stand and approach a holy God. Now also on the Day of Atonement, it was commanded to the people that they would fast. That Old Testament fasting was the giving up of food as a sign of mourning and a sign of anticipation for the Messiah that was to come, the Messiah that was promised to them. And so the Jewish people on the Day of Atonement would spend the entire day, one day a year, they would spend an entire day not eating, they would fast as an act of mourning for their sin, as these goats were slaughtered and one goat was sent away. And they would spend this entire day fasting as an anticipation of looking forward to the promised Messiah who would, who would eventually take away all of their sins. That's what the fasting was all about. Well, over time, fasting became a spiritual practice among God's people. And any time they were in a season of mourning or a season of anticipation, the people would fast. Not because they were commanded to, but because it was a practice of, 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 of growing closer to God. Well, the Pharisees, over a couple of hundred years, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, become, they get in power. And they do what the Pharisees typically did. They put this practice of fasting and they made it law. And so the Pharisees decided... That it wasn't good enough just to fast one day a year, but rather, if you wanted to be righteous, if you really wanted to be holy, then you needed to fast two times a week. 
And they cemented that into law. This enters in legalism. And if you did not fast according to the tradition of the Pharisees, then these religious leaders would deem you unfit, unrighteous, unclean, unpure, and you could not stand before God. You could not worship God. So back to the book of Luke. That after Jesus questions their righteousness, the Pharisees fire back at Jesus and they say, hey, look, we fast two dimes a week. That we go above and beyond what the law of Moses requires. In fact, anyone who is righteous goes above and beyond the law that Moses requires. And your disciples, your boys, they ain't fasting. They're not righteous. They're unclean. They're hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. What do you have to say to that, Jesus? And the Pharisees think that they have Jesus right where they want him. Verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. In other words, Jesus goes, who goes to a wedding and doesn't eat? Nobody. That weddings are are times of celebration and food is abundant. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is is he's drawing upon common Old Testament uh, imagery here. That all throughout the Old Testament, God is described as the groom, as the bridegroom, and the people as the bride. That all throughout the Old Testament is this this beautiful picture of a faithful relationship where God is our groom and God's people are the bride. It's a beautiful picture. It's one that the Pharisees would have known well. And in this statement, Jesus is implying not only that the groom has arrived, but that he, in fact, is the groom. And in this moment, the Pharisees would have collectively lost their minds. Because not only a few days later had had Jesus forgiven sins, which only God could do, but now he was actually claiming to be God. He was actually claiming to be the Messiah, the Savior, the bridegroom that was to come. He says, look, my disciples, they are friends of the groom. And they should celebrate that this is not a time to mourn. And the anticipation that you fast over, that whole thing that the Day of Atonement is all about, that's that's here. After thousands of years of dreaming and longing and yearning and hoping, the bridegroom has come. The bridegroom is here. The absence, Jesus says, the absence of fasting with my disciples is not a sign of their unrighteousness. No, 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 no. It is a witness to them understanding that the presence of God is in their midst. And Jesus says, look, there will be a day when I'm taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. But those days aren't today. Today is the day that we party. And even though throughout the Gospels, We see Jesus so harsh on the Pharisees. I mean, he just pounds on the Pharisees time and time again. He wants them to see. He wants them to believe. He wants them to be healed. And we see this right here. He wants them to see so badly that he gives them a parable, or what I call story time with Jesus. And he gives them these two parables, verse 36. He also told them a parable to the Pharisees. That no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the new wine will burst and the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. That Jesus is using both of these parables to make the same point. He says if you put a new patch on an old garment, on an old shirt, then not only will it not match, but when it's washed, the old garment is already shrunk. It's already the size that it's supposed to be, but the new patch is not. And when you wash it, wash it the new patch is going to shrink and it's going to make the hole even worse than it was before. And then he flips it to wineskins. Now, in our day and in our culture, we don't really understand this because it's not something that we do regularly. But in Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture, this was readily understandable. He says, when you're doing new wine, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. See, old wineskins had already been stretched. And during the fermentation process of wine, the wine expands and, it, and, it, and there's pressure there. And if you put it into old wineskins that have already been stretched, then the, the wineskins will, will explode under the pressure of the fermentation. The point that Jesus is making is that the old garments, the old wineskin, is Judaism and specifically the way that they practice fasting. And that Jesus is coming, his mission is the new garment, it's the, it's the new wineskin. See, Jesus says that the Old Testament way of fasting, it's, it's done, it's old. That he didn't come to pour new wine into old skins. That the new wine, it, it represents the new reality that has come with Jesus. That the kingdom of God is here. That the bridegroom has come. That the, that the Messiah is in our midst. That the Savior is among us. And the yearning and the longing and the ache of the old fasting ways was not based upon the truth that the Messiah had already come. That once the Messiah showed up, that once Jesus showed up, it changed everything. It changed everything. And the Pharisees, they could not see it. They would not see it. They were lost in their own self-righteousness. And they would rather hold on to their traditions than to submit their lives to Jesus in order for their souls to be free. And we look at the story of Jesus, and the question that we have to ask is, is what does the story have to do with us? That when we read this story, what are we to take from it? I mean, it's a nice story, but, but how does it apply to our lives? And the way that I would answer that question is like this, that, that as we look at our lives, for many of us, we probably look a whole lot more like the Pharisees than we would like to admit. Willing to hold on to our traditions and the things that we think make us righteous. Instead of realizing that what Jesus does in us is brand new. And that our righteousness is not in the things that we do. That our righteousness, our righteousness is in the blood of Jesus. The Messiah, the Savior who, is, who has come. And in that... We have to be willing to, to look at this and go, are, are we willing to do the things that Jesus asks us to do? Are we really willing to submit our lives to us, unlike the Pharisees? Are we willing to submit our lives to Jesus? And the reason I ask that question is because Jesus actually talks about us in this passage. Did you catch it? It's verse 35. Let me read it to you again. He said, the days will come, that's in the future, when the bridegroom, Jesus, is taken away from them. 
And in those days, they, that's us, will fast. What Jesus is saying is that in the future, that's now, there will be fasting. And that fasting rests on the finished work of the bridegroom. Listen, this is very important for us all to understand. Very, very important. The great act of salvation for us is not in the future. The great act of salvation for us happened in the past. It's based on the past work of the bridegroom. That once Jesus came, nothing could be the same again. The wine is new. The blood is shed. The lamb is slain. The punishment of sin has been executed. Death is defeated. The bridegroom is risen. The spirit is sent. And the old fasting mindset is not adequate anymore. That we have tasted the new wine of Jesus. And so fasting for us is not because we are thirsty for something that we have not experienced or have not tasted. But we've tasted the real wine. And we've, we've seen the goodness of it. And we want more of that in our lives. That it's so satisfying that, that we want more. And that our anticipation for revival and freedom and renewal is because we've experienced all of that in Jesus. And there is something in us that, that craves for something more. That as we fast and, and put our lives to that, we can taste and see because we have tasted and seen the goodness of God. And we are desperately hungry for more of that in our lives. See, when it comes to the New Testament, fasting is always done alongside prayer. And it's spoken to us as, as really a spiritual discipline that we practice as God's people. It's not commanded, but over and over again in the New Testament, we see it as a, as a way that is, that is taught, that's taught to us as a way to approach God. Allowing the Holy Spirit to, to come in and to bring refreshment into our lives. That New Testament fasting requires that, that we deny ourselves of certain foods or drinks or even activities for a set period of time. And in doing so, we, we gain a new perspective of the way that God is working. It renews our reliance upon, upon Jesus. That when we for a moment just take our eyes off the things of this world, that we can focus more clearly on who Jesus is and what he wants from us. See, today, in applying this story of Jesus to our lives, I want to invite our church into a seven-day fast, a seven-day fast. Now, many of you know that this year for Crossroads is a fairly significant year. We've already had uh, Pastor Kim step down as the senior leader of this church and me step into this. And as we head into the future, we've partnered with a group called Unstuck, a group that we're, that's coming in to help us discern what the church looks like as we go into the future because the reality is, is that the culture has changed rapidly around us. That you may or may not know this, but when it comes to Adams County and Wells County, the two places where our three campuses are at, that 70% of people identify with no religious affiliation. That 70% of people reply to census surveys that they have no religious affiliation, that we are not just in a post-Christian culture, we are in a like a post-post-Christian culture, that the entire culture has changed around us. And we are in a season as a church where we are trying to discern what is it, God, that you're calling as a church to be. And we want to begin that. We, we, want to, we want to determine what that future is, but we want to do so with God. And so as we start that process, we want to focus on the right things in submission to what Christ wants us to do in each and every one of us. And so the leadership is on board. Your pastors are on board. Church council is on board. 
that I'll be posting on social media, on Facebook, every day during this fast, just speaking, what is God speaking into my lives? And we firmly believe, we firmly believe that God is going to move us in powerful ways. And that our prayer, my prayer specifically, is that you would experience God's presence in a special way as you commit to this discipline of fasting over the next seven days. That, that, that we would make the number one goal of, of this seven-day fast simply to grow closer with Jesus. In total surrender, drawing near to him and submitting our will to his. And in doing this, I just believe that, that God's going to draw close to us. And that God's going to allow us to see what we, what we need to see. Now, if you've never done a spiritual fast before, let me just kind of give you a, a little bit of the logistics, all right? Actually, you can find all of this at crossroadsabc.com forward slash fasting. But basically, when it comes to New Testament fasting, we see a couple of ways, or biblical fasting, we see a couple of ways that you can fast. The first is what we would call a full fast. This is where you drink liquids only. We see this time and time again in the scriptures where people will, will give up food in order that they can pursue God. The second way of fasting that we, that we find in the scriptures is, is that's become quite popular in our day is called the Daniel fast. And the Daniel fast means that you don't eat any meats or sweets or breads. That basically you drink water or juice, you eat vegetables and fruit. It's, it's the fast that Daniel in the Old Testament did for several years. Another type of fast is what we would call a partial fast. A partial fast is where you either fast from sunup to sundown or where you choose a meal or two during the day to fast and to pray instead of eating, and then you just eat one meal a day. That you can select during our fast uh, any three types of fasting that you would like to do. A full fast, a Daniel's fast, a partial fast. I would say if you have medical issues uh, that, you, uh, that don't allow you to give up food, then there's also fasting that we see in Scripture where we, where we give up an activity, whether that be uh, maybe social media or technology, where you give up uh, your phone, whatever it might be, TV, whatever it might be, whatever it is that denies yourself in order that you're able to spend time seeking God. If you want to join with me as a church in this, we're going to begin tomorrow, Monday, February 24th, and we're going to do it through Sunday night, March 1st, breaking the fast next Sunday night. See, I just believe as a church, I just believe as a church, that if we deny ourselves, and that if we spend time in fasting, not Old Testament, old Judaism way of fasting, fasting for the Messiah. No, that's not why we fast. But if we spend time fasting, removing our focus from this world and focusing on Jesus, that I just believe that God is going to allow us to draw near to him. How could he not? How could he not? And I just sit back and I just imagine, what if, what if an entire church was fasting and seeking God. What is it that God would do in our midst? What is it that God would show us? What is it that God would, would draw us to and light our hearts on passion for? And so with that, I invite you into this fast over the next week together. And so let's pray as we end. Father, Lord, you are so good to us. So good to us. And Lord, I am so grateful for the times that you deal so gently with us. Lord, the reality is, is that every single one of us has a little bit of the Pharisee in us. Lord, traditions and, and things that we do that, that we think make us righteous when you tell us time and time again that our only righteousness, the only righteousness that we have comes from you. 
And so, Father, I pray that we would trust in that truth, that we would trust in that truth. And, Lord, that we would also step into the thing that you call us to step into. That you said in this story that there will be a time for fasting, that there will be a time when, when you're not walking physically in our presence, and then that time is the time of God's peoples to fast. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would help us. Lord, we want to be a church who runs after you. We want to be a church that seeks you. And God, we see in Jesus' life, Lord, we see in, Lord, throughout the New Testament, that fasting was one of the ways that you used to draw people near to you. And so God, as a people who wants to see you more clearly and to love you more deeply, Lord, we dedicate this time to you, this next week to you. Lord, praying that you will step in in ways of, of helping us understand, helping us discern where we're to be individually, where we're to be as a church. And Lord, I just know that if we do it and do it together, Lord, that you will reveal to us. So Lord, we place that in your good hands, expectantly waiting for the way that you'll speak to us. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, friends, it's an exciting season for